In the modern context, where most of our populations live in cities and urban areas, these modern societies and cities could potentially collapse without adequate water supplies because we wouldn't have enough water to meet drinking water needs, for manufacturing needs, for energy production, uh, for food production, and even for drinking water needs. So when we talk about adaptation, water resources, water security has to be very high on that agenda. Hello, I'm Tatiana Antonelli Abella, founder of Gumbuk, and you're listening to Forward Talks, Conversations That Matter. This episode is part of our special series, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, in partnership with MasterCard. We're sharing inspiring stories of sustainability leaders, climate champions, driving impact from our region to the world. I'm joined today by Mohamed Mahmoud, Director of Climate and Water Program at the Middle East Institute, one of the oldest Washington DC-based think tanks dedicated to the study of the Middle East. Mohammed has an extensive background in water resource issues and management, such as how climate impacts on the Nile River and policy issues amongst nations sharing the water, and a project in Saudi Arabia to formalize their groundwater management code. I spoke to him about his role at the Middle East Institute studying the region and to understand the issues we're seeing both globally and in the region as a result of climate change. Between the period of July 3rd to July 6th, we broke the record for the hottest average global temperature three times in the span of essentially uh, four days. And to me, that is really alarming stuff. And, and I say that without hyperbole. Um, You'll also may have recalled that the World Meteorological Organization uh, at the beginning of the year warned that there was a 98% likelihood that at least one of the five years, one of the next five years in the next upcoming period, so that would be 2023 through 2027, we'll probably see a new record in terms of average temperatures. So most recently this year, um, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of, of the UN, um, said that we we are actually we need to move a bit faster. Um, of course, the Agenda 2030 uh, tells us, you know, to to take action in order to make sure we stay on the path to not go over 1.5 uh, degrees um, rising of the temperature of of, uh, of the planet. But apparently, we we are already on the on the road to two degrees and that we need to act earlier than 2030. Do you think that what is happening these days is 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 a clear symptom and, and a clear uh, fact that this is accelerating faster than what we thought? Yeah, I mean, I think all uh, indications seem to support that, that we can clearly point to the fact that the last eight years are the warmest in not all of human history, but all of maybe human recorded history as it relates to this type of information. Um, some of the studies have already indicated that we may have already blown past being able to curb global warming in the midterm. So by midterm, I'm saying less than 100 years into the future, uh, beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius. I mean, it's debatable. Some people have different opinions on this, but some of the studies have indicated that we can no longer meet the 1.5 degree Celsius goal 
which now puts more focus on can we kind of reorient our efforts and and really uh, step it up to not now blow past the two degrees celsius and those two markers are important because uh, earlier studies when when they were identified indicated uh, the severity of, of of climate outcomes once we get beyond that point some of those um, implications are either not reversible or not recoverable even in the short term thinking about not being reversible we also need to look at how we can deal with this and and so this is where we're looking at adaptation i think also what would be really interesting um thanks to your expertise on on both climate change and water security it would be to to understand the importance of water in the context of climate adaptation because um like uh, his highness sheikh mohammed bin zayed al nayan mentioned a few years ago water now is is much more important and precious than oil um and this is going to be really uh, a a big big challenge for the future of the renewable but definitely for the for everyone and for humanity yeah i couldn't agree more and that's not because i have a natural bias to this topic because uh, water Water is has been sort of my bread and butter throughout my career. Um, if you don't mind me just sharing an anecdote that I think could could really open up this conversation piece a little bit further, I like to think of climate change as think of it as a disease. And how do you how do you treat a disease or how do you treat an infection? Um, you do two things, right? One is you address the cause of the infection to eliminate it right? To me, in terms of climate change, that's climate mitigation. So climate mitigation looks at how do you directly reduce emissions, but at the same time as a patient, beyond just treating the source of the disease, you also have to treat the symptoms. As a patient, you don't want to feel miserable as your, you know, as your infection or disease or illness resolves. To me, treating the symptoms is adaptation, climate adaptation. And for me, when, when we talk about adaptation, water is the most critical part of any adaptation strategy because water again is connected to so many other things that if it's compromised can also lead to other other subset of consequences we also need to recognize that water security is also food security about 60 to 70 percent of the world's water use goes to supporting food production and agricultural production so right off the bat if you if there's implications that compromise your water resource that directly has a consequence to your ability to grow food uh, to grow crops to support your local and regional populations Um, and also you need water for other things you need water for manufacturing uh, for production general production water is used in the cooling components for for power plants Um, you need water for sanitation again looking at the residential water side and so in the modern context, where most of our populations live in cities and urban areas, these modern societies and cities could collapse. And again, not, not to be too extreme in, 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 in this, but could potentially collapse without adequate water supplies because we wouldn't have enough water to meet drinking water needs, for manufacturing needs, for energy production, uh, for food production, and even for drinking water needs. So. When we talk about adaptation, water resources, water security has to be very high on that agenda. 
I think also looking at, you know, ourselves, we are made of what, 90% water. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible to think about life for, for us without, without water. And, um, uh, a fact actually that is is quite uh, shocking and when when we do awareness sessions about water scarcity for example the first ac uh, question we ask to the participants is actually how much water is out there for us to use you know i mean we call it the blue planet we have uh, the the it's covered by 70% uh water but how much of that water is actually uh available to us and clean and, and people are shocked because, you know, they have to share a percentage. So they start by 50%, 40%. And when you tell them it's less, they go down to 20, 15. It's very hard for actually, for, for them to understand that we're talking about, um, what, 2%? But out of this 2%, 1.5 is actually ice and snow. Something that is, is really interesting to compare is also the water usage in the Middle East, specifically maybe in the Arabian Peninsula, whereby due to the easy access to water due, because of desalination, we have a, a very high percentage of, of uh, a very high usage of water per capita. I mean, we're talking about 550 liters sometimes per person per day. And when you compare this to Europe, it's, we were talking about 250 liters, but then looking at, you know, for example, refugee camps, um, People are given 60 liters a day and they have to do everything with it. They have to cook, they have to wash themselves, wash their clothes. Um, so this is where we we need to value more water because it's so scarce and, and people don't have this knowledge. They don't have this fact. And I think also, of course, we talk about the environmental impact. and and But what you mentioned goes much, much more beyond that and when it's about food security then that has a huge impact on 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 the on on humans um so i would i would love for you also to to explain to to everyone uh, the social aspects and the social implications of of water scarcity for the middle east i think the societal impacts of climate change are huge uh, when we think of loss of livelihoods from things like extreme weather. I mean, um, you remember end of last summer, uh, the flooding that was happening in Pakistan, Afghanistan, right? Just, just really devastating flooding that uh, wiped out uh, homes and infrastructure and, and buildings and, and, and farms. So when something like that happens, you push or climate change actually can push people into economic hardship they've lost their source of livelihood and income which may have already been uh, challenging to sustain to begin with um, another impact on a larger level is the potential for increased conflict between nations that share dwindling water resources uh, look no further than at least the two two major surface systems in our region the nile uh, there's been tensions brewing for a while between uh, Egypt and Ethiopia because of the construction of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. It's a big, huge, biggest hydroelectric dam in Africa. Um, how that could impact water supply to Egypt. Same thing on the Tigris-Euphrates with climate change. There's less water being generated from high elevation. So accusations of Turkey hoarding water to the detriment of Iraq, uh, Syria downstream. Um, and I think in general, it causes 
more difficulty in accessing food and water, and especially for rural and poorer populations that, that aren't necessarily living in cities or aren't necessarily being supported, having to make difficult decisions. I mean, I remember uh, a year or a year or so ago hearing reports of the potential of outbreak of waterborne illnesses in Syria because of some of the rural population's inability to access safe drinking water. And so they resort to getting water directly from rivers and streams, but by doing so, not going through proper water treatment to make sure that what they extract is safe for drinking. Um, and, and so the risk, I think the bigger risk on the societal level is all of these types of impacts place pressures, certainly more so on the disadvantaged in our society. Uh, the poor, the ill, the elderly, the disabled, um, and risks further disenf disenfranchising those segments of society uh, further. And that, I think, feeds a lot into the climate migration issue, actually the human migration issue. Uh, and I think we may see more of climate change being a larger factor or driver indirectly uh, of of migration, hence you know the cl the climate migration term, as people both seek better economic opportunities and physical safety from the impacts of climate change. And I can't think of a better example than what happened in in Pakistan end of last summer. And and with the warming and all the things we talked about, we can see more amplification of those types of impacts pushing people to make those types of difficult decisions. Actually, when we talk about climate change, and this is something that m uh, most of the people don't know, um, in the media, as we refer to, you know, refugees, when we actually um, refer to wars and, and conflicts, as, as you just mentioned. But uh, a very important uh, fact is that around the world today, we have more climate refugees than war refugees. And this is exactly because of, you know, lack of access to to water, so no agriculture, and therefore famine, um, more uh, diseases coming through. Sometimes even uh, a, a migration of of insects. I mean, even uh, some mosquitoes. Uh, specifically, when we talk about you know dengue, for example, they've been able to move around and reach countries where there was no dengue before. And now this kind of diseases is actually threatening population and people have to, to move away from their homes. And, and this is generating a huge um, human movement around the world and, and people are leaving their homes. There is a shift, right, where we're seeing migration because of climate. And one of the issues related to that is how do you support those populations? I think we're going to see more of a call and push to formalize some of those systems. So at a regulatory level, at an international level, at the UN level, we can more readily support uh, those populations and, and not necessarily leave uh, the countries that are uh, sort of absorbing them uh, to stand on their own, but to provide international support. When we come back, Mohammed shares great case studies in the MENA region that are helping climate adaptation energy mitigation, and water usage reduction. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the Priceless Planet Coalition launched by our partners MasterCard. The coalition aims to restore 100 million trees around the world by 2025. You can visit the Priceless Planet Coalition website in our show notes to find out more and join the movement. 
Thank you to MasterCard for their support of Forward Talks and Gombok. Welcome back to our special series, Climate Leaders Rising Up to COP28, with Mohamed Mahmoud. Before the break, Mohamed spoke about the human impacts of climate change, such as increasing conflict due to countries sharing dwelling resources. These are difficult circumstances, and we need to explore more climate diplomacy to resolve these issues for the planet. To me, climate diplomacy is the soft side of getting things done. Uh, when it comes to international, the international climate resilience space, the space, the hard side, obviously, being the technical aspects of climate mitigation and adaptation projects. But climate diplomacy, from my perspective, is what gets countries on the same page to aggressively tackle climate change with respects to NDCs, national term contributions and emission reductions. Climate diplomacy is what led to the ratification by parties of the Paris Agreement in 2015. It's what produced agreements such as the loss and damage agreement that came out of COP27 uh, last year. And ultimately, it's what makes nations collaborative, collaboratively find ways and effective pathways to a future with reduced global warming. So to me, in, in, a, in a broad sense, climate diplomacy is what opens the door for national and international climate action. How do we get people together? How do we get them to agree? And once we're all on the same page, then we can start to figure out what we need to implement and do to address climate change. So on this positive note, it, it would be really interesting to understand what is being done at the moment to adapt and mitigate. Uh, are there any case studies uh, about you know regional efforts worth highlighting in terms of maybe energy transition or climate adaptation and mitigation and water usage? They're actually very interesting, uh, I think, uh, stories and success stories of climate resilience occur occurring in the region that aren't necessarily just from government and national levels, but from even community and citizen levels that demonstrate actual action on the ground. So I'll share a few of them. Um, one of the things that has been happening in Bahrain, for example, is an expansion of greenhouses and hydroponic farming by a local startup, and specifically the one I'm thinking of is called Peninsula Farms, as a way and a means to address both the limited land for agricultural production in Bahrain, as, as, as those that may be familiar, Bahrain is an island, as well as the limited water available to support local food production. So looking at uh, greenhouse greenhouses and hydroponic farming, which may have high startup costs initially, but is a precision way of of uh, utilizing water to maximize food production, also lo local food production, so that the country uh, looks inwards to boost its water, its, its, its food supplies without necessarily relying externally. Similarly, in terms of agricultural food production, there's this really interesting story out of Jordan, uh, where women farmers in Jordan have switched to alternative livestock feed. Uh, this is called the Azola plant to offset water intensive requirements of growing other traditional livestock feed like hay or alfalfa for, uh, for cows and goats and that type of thing, or even corn for chickens. Um, on a larger scale, when we look at water augmentation, of course, desalination is the big one for the region, but there's other alternative forms of water augmentation that are, are, are not just being explored, but are actually taking place. So for example, the UAE, 
uh, has a, what I really call a flagship program for cloud seeding. It's the UAE Rain Enhancement Program. Uh, and they've been operating for, for a number of years to essentially seed clouds to produce more rain uh, as a way to boost uh, freshwater supplies through precipitation. There are currently other pilot projects in the region. Saudi Arabia, I think, is, is looking into this more intensely, more on the western side of the country. And there have been various other previous uh, pilot test programs uh, in other places of the region, like uh, some of the Maghreb regions in North Africa. Another example is uh, expansion of residential solar panels. We've seen that at a smaller level, at a community level across the region. And the last example I'll highlight, because there's many, but these, these are some of the ones that come to mind for me, is the indirect offset of carbon emissions by expanding public transportation. And two really good examples that meet transportation needs while reducing emissions is the expansion, not just of trains, but bullet trains. I think of al uh train, bullet train system in Morocco that connects the coastal cities uh, from Tangier all the way to Casablanca. And then if you even look more closely in the Arabian Peninsula region, Al-Hamain High-Speed Railway in Saudi Arabia, which connects the cities of Mecca and Medina. And so by making sure people are using these modes of transportation, you're reducing uh, the number of cars on the roads, uh, reduces the emissions from those types of vehicles, reduces the usage of fossil fuels from those types of vehicles. So I think that's, that's a great, um, societal uh, technical technological innovation. And what I like about these examples is they're not just future plans, visions, agreements, and goals, which are important, but they're really good examples of local action and implementation that's driven by citizens, by communities, and even subdivisions uh, of government or, or local municipalities. They're really encouraging examples of, of the tenacity of the human spirit to not just wait for action, but to do things out of necessity, need, uh, and circumstance. Definitely, and and uh, I think here in the UAE we've we've seen a lot uh, happening also in that sense. For example, the Etihad Railway, a mm. train that uh, will start by you know uh, moving from um, the UAE up to Saudi uh, goods, but it will also become a, a passenger train, and and it was going to be revolutionary for for this uh, for this region with a huge reduction uh, of emissions uh, in terms of solar what is interesting is and I don't know if you had the chance to actually uh, meet or 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 talk to the this company called um, zero mass I think and they produce solar panels that actually are able to condensate the water in the humidity and produce drinking water out of uh, thin air. Yeah. And um, I found this incredible. Of course, I, I don't think we are still there from a price point of view. I think a solar panel uh, is around two to three thousand dollars, and it produces just five liters a day. But hopefully, <laughs> with more research and more um, you know technological advances, maybe we will be able to have these solar panels who would be able to to give us drinking water because. Somehow, this reliance on on desalination might be 
uh, also challenging for the salinity of uh, of the Arabian um, Gulf and see the population here is growing. So this yeah. is also, I think, another challenge that uh, we're facing and how to access drinking water is, is really um, interesting. So we're talking about, you know, all these different countries in the region. And, and I would like to, to maybe also dive in a bit more on, on the role of the UAE and the GCC in, in, in general. I mean, Bahrain, as you mentioned, they are doing a lot of efforts, um, mainly because in the region, I think they are the ones who are already seeing the effect of the sea level rise being an island and, and being quite um, low. For them, sea level rise is a very big threat and this has um, accelerated action. But I would say from what we can see, there's, there's a lot happening. What, what do you see from, from your end? There is a lot happening and I think there is a large role uh, for the UAE GCC countries to play in terms of uh, climate adaptation and, and, and climate response and resilience. I think the obvious that most people will point towards is this is a region that provides a significant source of energy and oil production to the rest of the world. So naturally, there's a role there to play because of that. Um, another aspect that I think uh, countries in the GCC, certainly when I think of uh, UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar to a certain extent, uh, is the ability to help leverage and facilitate climate financing uh, across the MENA region uh, and Africa. And I don't mean that just as them, those countries being the primary source of funding, and they, they do and they have, uh, they're able to do that. But I think there are um, uh, templates or mechanisms of cost share, right? So it's like, if we're able to fund this amount, we expect others to match as well. And that's been a big push in, in the COP conversation in terms of how do you make the global North countries uh, put in their fair share or industrialized countries that have caused uh, more uh, uh, or, or have been a driver of climate change because of their industrialization versus other countries. So I think they can play a role in terms of leveraging the financing and not just exclusively from them. Um, and then I think the third piece is there's an opportunity for them, and they have, to play a, a role in terms of regional co cooperation stability. And I'll use uh, one, one of the most used examples, and I'll highlight another less used example. The most used, of course, uh, when we talk about the uh, deal of swapping solar for water between Jordan and Israel that was um, really facilitated by the UAE and specifically through MUSTA. Um, I'll use an even more recent example that's maybe a little bit uh, hits close to home for me because um, I'm originally from that country, which is what's been happening in Sudan in terms of the internal conflict and how uh, Saudi Arabia and a few other countries uh, have stepped up to try to put pressure to end that conflict. Unfortunately, it's still ongoing, but to be a neutral location for the peace talks and other countries, uh, for example, Qatar, speaking of the GCC countries, uh, sending aid, others as well, but sending aid and humanitarian assistance to struggling populations. I'd argue uh, the GCC countries have done more in terms of, of evacuation in that conflict than um, uh, some other countries. And not, not to put a light on the United States, it was, you know, it was really 
underwhelming in comparison. So, so there there are a number of areas I think uh, as it relates to climate adaptation that that uh, the the GCC countries and the Gulf uh, and certainly the UAE now wearing the the hat of of the of the COP presidency. Uh, can move forward. And and there are things they've already been doing. So it's not starting from scratch. There's a proof of concept and they're able to, um, to continue to support that. So what are your hopes for COP28? Um, it's happening now in um, here in Dubai. Um, and uh, th- there's a lot of, as you said, expectation and uh, uh, for the first year there's going to be a stock taking uh, mm. taking place so a lot of fingers are going to be pointed um, mm-hmm. to countries who haven't done too much in terms of climate action and, and mitigation so what are you hoping for? Well I think COP28 is going to be consequential in a number of areas Um I think with the UAE hosting, uh, they can really help set the standard for climate mitigation, emission reductions, energy transition, renewable energy goals because of what we what we just briefly talked about. I really would like to see this transition um, from global parties towards implementation and action. I, I would like us to move beyond, you know, this declaration of goals and plans, some of which. Uh, countries have previously uh, stated and have started to operationalize, but unfortunately for a lot of countries, um, there's been a lot of talk and not enough action. Um, They haven't walked uh, the talk, so to speak. Um, So I'd like to see more of not just let's keep funding, you know, let's, let's populate the funds. We need to do that, but let's talk about how those funds are going to be used. Um, The various funds, the adaptation fund, the loss and damage, um, all these various funds, uh, Green Climate Fund, for example, which has been operationalized, but how are we going to actually put these goals and visions into action? How can we illustrate, and I would like countries to begin to illustrate, how climate adaptation and climate projects uh, will take place? And selfishly for me, I'd like to see uh, them to elevate uh, climate adaptation higher on the agenda. Uh, we focus more on climate mitigation, and that's rightfully the case. We haven't done enough in terms of climate adaptation. And even more specifically in climate adaptation, this will not surprise you, Tatiana, let us talk more about water resources, reliability, and sustainability. We've talked about food production. That's always been on the agenda. But it seems we almost skip the water part in a way because you can't get to food security, again, uh, without water security. So, so to me, those are my, my hopes and aspirations uh, to come out of COP28. From what we've heard, um, a lot will be uh, about, you know, really adaptation and, and, and funding and, and projects. It's still a two weeks only uh, negotiation. <laughs> I know that for a lot of people, this seems to be very, very long, but there's so much that needs to be discussed and it's, it's, it has to put two so many different stakeholders together to agree, and I, and I think here is where hopefully we'll see the the role of the UAE as being able to put together 
different players and and make them work together. As you mentioned, this has happened in the past and and hopefully it will happen also this time. But Mohammed, thank you so much. I could, you know, continue uh, asking you uh, (laughs) more questions. I see the time going really fast. Um, Thank you so much for your contribution, for your expertise and knowledge. And uh, hopefully we'll see you uh, in Dubai for COP. Thank you, Tatiana. We'll see you at COP28, inshallah. You can find out more about the Middle East Institute via the link in our show notes to learn about their policy centers and specifically Mohammed's Climate Water Program. Thank you for joining me today. Forward Talks is brought to you by Goombook in partnership with MasterCard. I'm Tatiana Antonelia Beya, and this episode was produced by Samantha K. Ruse, Janelle Lopez, and Shira Disey. Thank you, and see you again soon.